Hi, everyone. I'm Diana Pizzoni with Ted Moodis Associates, your chair for programs. And along with the rest of the programs committee, uh, Jonathan Zietler with Transwestern and Patrick Hengel with AT&T. Thank you for being here. Um, it was kind of interesting noticing everyone come in today and everyone just sort of uh, gravitated to where they felt comfortable, whether it was the traditional long table or sitting on the stair steps or sitting at a high table somewhere. And there was sort of this, or just lounging on a sofa, kicking your feet up. But what was um, striking me as interesting is that everyone went to, maybe it was just where there was space, or maybe it was just where they felt comfortable. And there's sort of this underlying factor of what's leading to our conversation today about diversity and inclusion in the workspace, how our workplace is changing, how should we be changing them, how are codes changing, plumbing codes specifically, potentially. Um, but it just was an interesting happenstance that uh, we are here and we were not in your traditional setting of table and chairs, everyone file in and find your table of 10. So I like that we had this diversity of space. Um, but again, with the rest of the programs committee, if you like what's going on here, please make sure Patrick and Jonathan know that. If you don't like it, I'll take the fall. So um, I'd like to introduce our panelists first before they take off and come onto stage. So our first panelist is Pam McElvain. She is with Diversity MBA, and that is a national brand that provides recognition and branding, talent management, and diversity and inclusion strategies to Fortune 1000 companies. Um, Pam leads a team that provides clients with access to leadership development programs, programming, benchmarking, research, and current trends. Pam has her MBA in finance and marketing from University of California, Berkeley, and her team has, in the last 10 years, trained over 25,000 professionals. So Pam, welcome. Next, we have Christopher Schwedek. Chris is a licensed architect and code chief consultant, with, and he's the director of the code group of Burnham Nationwide. He also assisted in founding them in 2001. He is also an adjunct professor at Harper College um, on courses, courses on codes and building codes. And he's been doing that since 1998. And Chris has over 40 years of experience in architecture and design, or architecture, codes, et cetera, in the Chicagoland area. So welcome, Chris. And last but not least is our moderator, Michelle Silverthorne. She is the founder and CEO of Inclusion Nation. It's a recognized organizational diversity expert. She's a graduate of Princeton University and the University of Michigan Law School, which I will say that even though I went to Michigan State, but still, it's, it's good. We're good. We're keeping it in the Big Ten. Yeah, exactly. Not everyone. <laughs> Anyway, she's practiced at major law firms in New York and Chicago prior to starting uh, Inclusion Nation. And she speaks um, about uh, Im implicit bias, implicit bias, diversity, inclusion, and millennials in the workplace. So welcome, Michelle. Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle Silverthorne. It's a pleasure to be here. I will talk for a few minutes just to level set us. And then I'm gonna turn it over to this wonderful panel that we have. Um, we have two of us, so we're probably all three of us gonna be talking a lot. Um, I'm Michelle Silverthorne. I am the founder and CEO of Inclusion Nation. Um, we do this, I do travel around the country, I do workshops and speeches. Um, and what I have found, having done this work for a number of years, is that if we are gonna do this, if we are gonna sit here and say that we want to change outcomes, we wanna change futures, then we need to center our conversations on two things. 
We need to center our conversations on courage, and we need to center our conversations on honesty. And what do I mean by honesty? We have so many initiatives and fundraisers and programs and scholarships in place. But the reality is, and we'll show you the numbers in a second, we have barely moved the needle on full inclusion in this industry. Now, based on my years of experience working in corporate America, based on my years of experience teaching diversity, what I have learned is that we have to be honest. We have to be honest about what is not working. And then we also have to be honest about how we are seeing each other, how we think about each other, how we talk to each other, and the assumptions we're making about each other. And so to help with that, I would like to say two things. Um, first, I am a black woman immigrant. I came to this country 17 years ago. And as a black woman immigrant, a lot of my work and my research and my perspective is from that of a black woman immigrant. Everyone at this table also has their own perspectives as well. But what we are gonna share and the stories we will share and the data we will share and the solutions we will share can and should apply to every single person in this workplace. All right, that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. This is not gonna be an easy conversation, like we just mentioned earlier. This is not going to be a conversation where I say, if you just hire this one person, or you just sign this one check, or you just do this one thing, we are going to change things. Because we are focused on inclusion. And we are focused on making inclusion a reality for everyone. And that takes hard work, and it also takes something else. It takes courage. And it takes courageous people sitting right here in this room to stand up and say, that may be the way we've always done it but this is gonna be the way we change it. That's what I want from all of you. I want you to be brave, I want you to speak up, I want you to be courageous, and I want you to be leaders who change the future. Because I'm gonna tell you a little bit about that future. So um, I talk about millennials a lot, because I'm a millennial of color, and I talk about millennials of color. And when I talk about millennials, hey, I like to talk about these numbers. You see, we make the business case for diversity a lot, and I have many thoughts about why we should stop just making the business case for diversity, but it's important. And part of the business case is you talk about things like this. These are the demographic numbers of the five generations currently in the American workplace. Traditionalists are 80% white, non-Hispanic, Caucasian white. That's probably my grandparents' generation. Baby boomers, 72% white. Gen Xers are 61% white. Millennials, my generation, 56% white. That's non-Hispanic, Caucasian white, by the way. And the youngest generation in the workplace, Gen Z, they are 44% white. Or I will phrase this another way, 56% of Gen Z are kids of color. Those are the post-9-11 generation. For the first time in American history, there are more kids aged zero to 10 who are kids of color than who are white. Every single year, I will phrase this another way, every single year since 2010, white children have been born the minority in this country. So that majority minority nation that everyone here keeps talking about, that's not just gonna pop up in 2044, it's happening right now. And it's not just race. I'll give you some numbers, right? Did you know that only 48% of Gen Z identifies as completely heterosexual? 56% of them use gender neutral pronouns like those? 70% of them support gender-neutral bathrooms, which we will talk about, and almost 3% of teenagers do not identify as either male or female. That's the reality of our population, of this country, and here is the reality of our workplace. 
You see, for the last couple of years, Lean In and McKinsey have done something where they have looked at um, women, the stats of women in the workplace, right? But they actually look at the stats of a lot of people. And these are broad stats. They apply to every industry. We'll talk about real estate in a little bit. But look at these numbers. You see, at the entry level, you know, men and women are about the same at about 52% and 48%. But then see what happens. See what happens as we go through the workplace. There's only one group whose numbers go up. One. Everyone else's numbers go down. Men of color, very broadly defined, go from 16% to 9%. White women go from the entry level at 31% to 19% in the C-suite. And women of color go from 17% to 4%. And so I'm going to end with this, which is where we are right now in this room. So this was a study that was done in 2013 about commercial real estate senior executives. And here's what they found. 83% of them are male. And 92% of them are white. That's where we are. When I say that we need courageous people doing hard work to change numbers, these are the numbers I want people to change. And for the next few minutes, for the next hour, what we're going to do in this panel is that we are going to talk about that change. We're going to talk about what you can do to make that change a reality. And when you leave here today, I want you to feel empowered, I want you to feel challenged, and I want you to go out and make change happen. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to our panelists, and we're going to get started. Thank you, everyone. All right, thank you so much for doing this. And I mentioned at the beginning that I, I hate staying on stools. We mentioned at the beginning that we are going to start with some level setting. So let's start by talking about who's in this room today. Pam, do you want to go ahead and see who's in the room? Sure. Um, how many individual contributors? Okay. Middle managers. Directors. Vice presidents. Senior VPs. EVPs. No C-suite people here? <laughs> okay, great. Oh, right. there's one. Hold that hand up there, girlfriends. Okay, girlfriends, okay. There's a C-suite in the house, okay. Yeah, we wanted to start with that because we really wanted to get a sense of who was in this room and who's listening to this talk and how you can take it away from there. So with that, I want to talk about diversity. So I would like to turn to the two of you and talk about how do you define diversity? Really? <laughs> really? Hmm. So diversity. How do I define diversity? Because diversity has been inherently a part of the world as it is today and as it was then, um, I see it maybe as an ever-changing um, platform in terms of a journey of change management. I see diversity because of the dimensions have gone from five or, five or six ethnic groups in definition to 22 dimensions of diversity. So I also see, because it's not regulated as, it, as affirmative action was, to define by everyone's own experience. Mm -hmm. um, when, and it depends, to be honest with you, um, where I am at that moment. What is the tone of the audience or the tone at the top for that moment? Diversity could mean representation for some, meaning that you want an environment that has different people of backgrounds, of uh, ethnicities, and of experiences so that we could be um, more belonging. Um, I do separate diversity from inclusion right. in the sense of belonging. 
And um, so I just really, every day, if you ask me what diversity is, I might tell you it's something different because it's forever changing, particularly with five generations in the workplace. So I see it as a multi-dimensional platform that includes so many uh, dimensions of thought, ethnicity, culture, experiences, um, as well as representation. I want to, well, something else I want to say about diversity, um, someone told me this, and I, I love it. It's about um, diversity is being asked to the party and inclusion is being invited to dance. Like, bringing someone in the door isn't going to make it an inclusive space, right? Because what we need to do as managers and as leaders is to make sure that they are dancing. And that's where equity comes in. How am I going to teach you the steps? How am I going to show you how to succeed? How am I going to show you that this is the way you go or this is the direction we need to go in? Diversity, equity, inclusion, they all exist together. So as we talk about that, um, and we talked about equity, we talked about inclusion, we've been hearing a lot that organizations should be intentional about their diversity efforts. What does that intentionality look like to the two of you? Um, intention. So when intentional strategies, as when I think about organizations that are being intentional, we talk about diversity, inclusion, and equity, um, I see a commitment from the top, from both board leadership and from the CEO and the C-suite. So basically, it's the priority of the day. If diversity and inclusion from your senior executive says, we want to make this happen within our workforce, then I feel activities and initiatives that are aligned with your business outcomes um, you're intentional about making sure that inclusion and diversity is there. So um, an example is when companies say we want to have a dimensional, we want to have diversity training, and we want everyone in the organization to be included. And they intentionally are providing training programs that are uh, accessible at the works at the workspace, um, online, virtual you know, innovative ways for people across the globe can be engaged. They're investing in intentional strategies to um, create awareness. Um, when I think about the, the data, 90% of uh, Fortune 500 companies invest in, in training, and 80% uh, of uh, companies say the virtual engagement. And when I look at JLL, who's one of the number one companies in terms of virtual training and being intentional, they looked at how their workforce exists. Most of it was remote. And then how could we engage them globally um, and, and, and help them understand what we want to be, what, we, what they want it to be. So they intentionally invested in a platform that created outcomes and let people feel engaged. So um, I also would, would define intention as something that's out of the norm, something that is not what you do on um, a regular basis, it's, some, it's, it's intentionality means, to me, it also has to be aligned with accountability or it's meaningless. It's like anything else. You must measure the activities that you engage in doing it. So that's and, a high level for that. And that's why one of the things that when we talk about diversity and so many people say, I'm so frustrated, I don't see any progress, I always, we push back and we say, well, where did you start from? And what were you measuring? If you were saying that you saw no progress because you only hired, you know, three Hispanic executives in the past four years was your starting point zero Hispanic executives in the past 20 years. So thinking about what you're measuring, thinking about how you're measuring it, who's we hold held accountable to it and the goals that you might have. Chris, do you want to add something to that? Well, looking at it from a uh, building code perspective and a, uh, for my aspect, uh, plumbing code at this point, but um, so 
it's really only in the recent uh, period between the well, last 30 years, really, that we've looked at um, uh, the uh, requirements for the disabled. And um, that would include populations that are uh, aging, as well as children. And so there's a whole lot more uh, in terms of requirements that existed prior um, to ADA in some cases. So, um, and, and that's a social change that changed as a result of laws being uh, enacted to uh, recognize that we weren't all alike. And so that um, is now evolving into uh, recognizing transgender um, and and uh, dealing with it from that perspective. But when you look at, you know, <clears throat> we haven't even had uh, uh, plumbing systems in buildings, right, until the 19th century. And, and many of those buildings were built with only male washrooms, right? And then they finally introduced female and then the whole business about, um, well, uh, what they termed potty parody, where you, you know, that was the term. Yes, it's in quotes, but it's there in the language there's, of the there's, there's uh, interpretation. A, there's a research paper they're waiting for y'all to write. There you go. And uh, oh, I'll show you the paper. There's oh, a very interesting paper. <laughs> this uh, and and anyone who's interested, I'll share with you. But it's called "Arguing with the Building Inspector About Gender Neutral Bathrooms." Yeah, yeah. And it's written by a uh, professor who is a uh, attorney. Um, it was published in the uh, Northwestern University Law Review. Mm. But uh, yeah, so so I mean, again, th this is this is how our social norms change, and as a result, buildings have to change as well. Typically, it is a slower process mm -hmm. than the social changes that occur. There's can a I, go ahead. Can I um, just to this audience? I just thought about something around intention. Mm -hmm. So, is it your fault that you're homogenous? Not necessarily. It is just the nature and the evolution of the industry. Is it the fault that you happen to be a non-traditional industry for women and people of color? Not necessarily. But that is the way that is the, the, right? this industry has evolved in all of its nuances, in all of the many categories, right? Plumbing, a facility management, and all the different things that go into commercial real estate. So intention is, when you think about diversifying, a non-traditional workforce. So the women right now in this industry represent diversity for the industry. So let me say that that is only one dimension and you cannot get away with saying gender representation will solve the issue. It's only one dimension of it, but that's what this industry is doing. So intention means that we want to look at the women within our workforce and see that we're advancing them at the same rate, equity, as we are the men, so we can diversify the, the, the room, the leadership rooms. And then what are we doing in our pipeline to develop the talent of people of color and, um, and other women? Not to exclude at all the men that are in the workforce today, but to use them as buddies and parity, but being intentional about those numbers, being intentional about the pipeline connections that you make and having metrics around that. That's what would make a difference in terms of a changing world. Right. 
and looking at the numbers that you talked about. That's what Gen Zers will look at when they come into the workforce, is who looks like me at the top and what are the opportunities for me to advance. Right. So I just wanted to yeah, share no, that's that. Good. And I think okay. you know, talking about the generations especially and their expectations coming into the workplace, but also what, I mean, I, you know, Gen Z, they grew up with a black president, right? They grew up with women in the workplace. Those are their defaults. That is not a fight that they have had. That is what they expect. And we come into our workplace, and are we ready to change that? Are we, do we have the systems in place to welcome that in? That's a challenge. And if we keep on saying that, no, we're colorblind, we don't see race, we don't see difference, without recognizing that, of course we do, and without recognizing that it's clear that we do because look around us, then we need to figure out how can we change that. And going back to what Chris said, there is a great book called Biased. If you have not read it, it's a fantastic book. It's written by a woman out in, in London. And she talks about how so many systems have been created through the male gaze. Like, when do you clear snow on your streets? Do you clear snow for drivers? You don't clear snow for pedestrians, and as primarily women are pedestrians, and women going to different places, not to the downtown district to work, women going to be caregivers. And so their spaces are cleared later. And it's a really interesting perspective on how many systems are created with bias, unintentionally or not, in mind. So to our question, talking about building codes, how have you both seen that conversation change? You mentioned earlier with the transgender and with the plumbing codes, but other than building codes in and of themselves or how buildings are designed, do you see bias in that? And if so, how do we work around that? Well, even today, I think that um, we have uh, a, a lopsided um, division between uh, male and female in, uh, in the uh, uh, design professions. Mm -hmm. And uh, you would think after 40, 50 years that would not be true, but it, for the most part, still is. Right. And uh, so that obviously affects how uh, buildings get designed and interiors get uh, designed. I think that uh, the um, uh, effort to try and uh, change that has been... Uh, made mm -hmm. and, and is continuing to be made. Uh, I sit on a, uh, a foundation board for uh, AIA Chicago and we, we just recently developed a diversity scholarship for um, a college and, and graduate um, students so that uh, it uh, is, is certainly on our radar mm -hmm. in terms of how uh, this uh, uh, profession and is allied professions need to move forward. So, so when I think about spaces, and I think about, I, I, I go straight to the technology industry, when they were thinking about the design in terms of open spaces for the purpose of engagement and inclusion. So if you've walked into the LinkedIn and the Facebooks and the Googles um, workspaces, which they were, yes, very, they were biased in the fact that they were designing for themselves and they were designing how they could work and have the most production, productivity within their employees. So they created these open spaces for open leadership and for people to be able to engage. And then you saw some of what I call the, the old guards, forgive me, the AT&Ts um, of the world um, and the IBMs to say, hey, you know what? We want to change our workspaces such that, and, and the intention while there's definitely the inherent bias because who's designing 
um, was to, we want our leaders on the floor. We want, whether it was smart or not, I remember <laughs> going in there and one of the senior VPs uh, told me in Dallas, well, you know, I really don't like sitting over here that much, being that accessible all day, because I really don't get to do my work until I'm at home. But yeah, can you imagine your senior VP right here in this space as a, you know, standing, you know, this is the desks that are standing, you can go up and down and doing the work, coming by to have that conversation and engagement. So, so, the, so the marketplace shifted and moved over. And, and what's really crazy is what happened here in Chicago with the, the major split of the M&As, of the Motorola's, McDonald's, and everybody's coming down here and redesigning, right, the workspaces and coming downtown for looking for another uh, workforce engagement level and activities. So now that if you go out to those to those uh, suburban suburban companies, you'll see the open design again. And then you come down, you've seen Kraft Heinz that comes in and they sold their buildings and you come down, they have the open designs. Okay, so that's one evolution, one phase of it. So then after that, the conversation now is where do we get to bring the end users in? If you think about R&D, just I always think of the CBGs and I'm not sure that you guys did the same, but they, after they design it, they say, okay, we want the users to tell us about what this is, how this feels. So here in facility management, I'm not so sure when you talk about the person with disabilities, and I love Chris's um, insights. Um, have you thought about the open spaces for the persons with disabilities? Have you thought about the open space for the person that um, you know, may need a more combined space, particularly if you have autistic folks in your workplace? Have you talked about, have you thought about now moving? And this is what I'm not sure of is the shift, but I do know companies are having the conversations now about, okay, the openness was great and people can go and work at all these different places. You can play some ping pong, do some shooting and basketball as a break and all these things, but that's for a certain part of our workforce. We're making sure our, our leaders, ladies, show what inclusive leadership looks like by demonstrating that, by being approachable and available. So they're, they're doing that kind of change. But are they getting to the dimensions of diversity around the folks that have issues in terms of how they work and need to be treated a little bit differently? I think that's the conversation that we have to go to and look at today with persons with disabilities, with religious you know, um, idiosyncrasies that come into the workplace, you know, with, with um, different kinds of people, maybe you know, folks that are doing white paper research or whatever, they, they don't wanna be in the open space, they need to be in a confined space. But I think those becomes in terms of where we're going now. Yeah. And, and having, when you think, I, I would love to see ERGs or networks created around facility managers where you're talking about just that. And everybody can come in mm -hmm. and be a part of that conversation because there's 10 new employee resource groups, BRGs, that's been created that uh, that would be great for this organization, I mean, this type of industry to be able to do. And, and maybe each of you go and be a part of every ERG that exists in your organization to bring forward the conversation and the awareness in terms of how facility management, identifying commercial locations, understanding where we do the work. And, and all the things that you talked about, the changing of buildings that impact on what we do, what, how it could be more inclusive, how we can further diversify it. So. And the way I like what you said is how we can start that at the beginning of the conversation rather than at the end of the design phase. Like we need to get them involved at the start. And that's one of the challenges when our peer groups, I mean, one of the things that we talk about is, you know, 
the average white American has 91 white friends and nine friends of color. And 75% of white Americans don't know a single, they, have a, they don't have a single friend of color whatsoever. 75% of us. Okay, so you know, okay, yeah. okay, well, you know, I don't have 90% of white Americans as my friends either. I'm, I'm, no, I don't have 82% of them either. I mean, so let's be careful on how we throw that out because it's who's in your group. Small businesses of color employ that group. Indians employ Indians, African Americans employ African Americans, Hispanics, because it's where they are in the community. So I just want to, I'm sorry, we're doing the view here. I just want to push back. I just want to push back. We need to cross, reach out, to cross. But you, that, that's where awareness and intention and being comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. That's when you got to ask them, are you comfortable with walking? I'm going to tell you, I'm not comfortable, really, when I see, when I go to the golf alley and I see all these white guys over here, and they're, you know, and I'm like, and they said, Pam, you need to be able to talk to them. I'm like, God, I don't even know what to talk about. I don't like golf. I really don't care about it. I really don't know. But I'm going to... And I see a lot of white women over here. I'm going to go over there because I can say, girl, I like that person, them shoes. And before you know it, we're going to go into a whole other conversation. So I, I think if, when you mention the data, make sure we talk about what's behind that data in terms of you know, what's homogenous. Now my, now, my Gen Z, on the other hand, he's the one who has everybody. Yeah. He's the one who has you know, probably 80 or, or 30, 30, 30. Because that's his world. Mm -hmm. But I think we, when you talk about being intentional, you want to say, okay, if this is who you're surrounded by, if you're, you're, you're homogenous and you're comfortable with being around white people and you're comfortable with promoting them in the workplace, where is your discomfort? And why are you discomfort? Mm -hmm. What is the conversations, you know, when you talked about Honest building trust? Just, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, so go back to you. I'm just sorry. I just had to go there a little go bit there? just because I wanted to so make sure we level set that. Let's talk about, we talked about building codes, and we want to talk a little bit about transgender issues. So one of the things that we have talked about is how the plumbing codes have changed. How have you seen that continue to change, the conversation around transgender people, the conversation around bathrooms in the building code world? So I think it's really interesting that um, there was a um, bill passed in Illinois uh, this spring, the Equitable Restroom Act that was signed by Governor Pritzker. This had been tried in the previous um, administration um, and did not go through. But um, so what it basically requires is that um, all single occupancy restrooms be all gender. And so they're going to have to be marked differently as a result. Um, so obviously in new construction, there's more opportunity to um, diversify a washroom as opposed to an existing building, but as of January 1st, um, all public accommodations in public buildings must be identified as all gender um, if they're single user uh, washrooms. And so the signage that you have now um, will need to change mm -hmm. as a result of that. And there was some argument about this on the national level as well because the International Plumbing Code, uh, which was recently um, amended for, uh, for 2021, um, changed some of the requirements there as well so that um, from a uh, 
reference to uh, making single-user toilets available to all persons regardless of their sex as opposed to identified by use uh, by either sex. Um, the way you phrase this has a tendency to, uh, in and of itself, have bias. So you have to you know, choose your words carefully. And the uh, National Center for Gender Equality was um, teamed with the American Institute of Architects to enact some changes, uh, including um, situations where you can, in fact, um, have a um, washroom that's designed for all genders, uh, as long as the facilities have um, uh, the um, uh, toilets themselves divided in such a way that the doors go from floor to ceiling, okay? And um, so they don't tell you specifically how to design it, but it is open then to interpretation as to how you uh, make those arrangements. And there have been studies made as to how best to do that. And in fact, um, there are some here that I found that were able to come up with design solutions where when they uh, combine these, they have actually used less square footage than they would have if they had um, the traditional design. Yeah, and unfortunately, um, the slides that I prepared yesterday uh, are not available to me because the server was down. Um, yeah, well, yeah. Apparently, it's somewhere in the Ukraine. I'm not sure. <laughs> <clears throat> We're not going there today. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> Let's just stay away from the Ukraine in this conversation. So, so they had a traditional separated bathroom of about 452 square feet. And they were able to uh, come up with a couple of different layouts that uh, saved in excess of 100 square feet, depending on how the, uh, the room was arranged. And, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, you still have to take into account uh, ADA and have a uh, accessible toilet stall. But beyond that, these stalls will typically have um, lavatories in them as well. And in fact, uh, depending on whose version of this you're looking at, they've changed the, the terminology because, you know, again, language counts. So the, uh, the toilet stalls become the eliminating rooms. <laughs> the um, lavatories become the washing area, um, a separate area for a, a counter and mirror, which is the grooming area, and then a public area on, on the side of it, which is kind of the transition between a public corridor and this room. So um, again, I, I had great success embedding a four-minute video into my slide presentation, which isn't here. But if you look at um, stalled.online backslash hashtag video, they have this lovely presentation that is animated and has uh, some features that I think are, are quite interesting. What it does, though, it, it, it explains that the best way of doing it is to take your plumbing wall out, which is your, your stack where you've got 
uh, plumbing fixtures on either side, you take that out and you put the, uh, the stalls on one side. Well, that's fine for a one-story building, but if you've got multi-story buildings, that's going to be kind of quite a challenge. So clearly that's going to be something that is uh, uh, worked out um, on a case-by-case -case basis in, in, in do buildings. You, do you see the trend toward going toward gender-neutral bathrooms for everyone? Well, I've already seen them uh, yeah. in Chicago. And so, uh, yeah, I, but they have to be marked men's and women's. Yeah. And so they have to be discreet in terms of how they do it because they're not going to get approved uh, through, the, uh, through the permit process. So, but it doesn't mean that at some point they become adaptable mm. to, to use uh, as uh, basically gender neutral. So, so I think that people have this in mind already that it's been going on now for, I think, a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, unfortunately, we haven't, we've done a, a huge job in Chicago of just bringing us into the 21st century by um, changing the uh, building code that we've been using for the last 70 years and uh, using the, uh, the international uh, model. But uh, it's, it's a big job, and so it's, right. it's like a three-phase process, and the plumbing part of it hasn't been done yet. Whether or not they use the um, latest version, you know, that will include some of this more uh, inclusive uh, elements uh, is another story. But we are, in fact, in a situation where we do have at least the opportunity of changing uh, signage for, for single user good. use. Which is good, which is progress, which I think leads to our next question, which is um, taking it back to this industry and what we are seeing as progress when it comes to inclusion and what we're not seeing as progress when it comes to inclusion. Um, as we've listened to this conversation, as we talked about the drivers for equity in building design, what do you see as the drivers for inclusion in the real estate industry? Well, I think it's probably the same mm -hmm. as it is for um, green buildings and for um, you know, sustainable solutions in, in, in buildings. That is a, a, a driver from, from the standpoint that um, it is both uh, encouraged from a financial standpoint and from a... The money, hmm? the money standpoint. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, again, you know, if you, if you can get, if you can attract more um, businesses to your to your building, um, that is that is certainly a feature. I, you know, an initial costs, yes, that is that is a challenge sometimes. But mm -hmm. um, the more able uh, designers are in, in integrating um, these types of solutions uh, into buildings, both new and uh, retrofit, um, that will in fact uh, impact uh, the. Uh, the industry, and so that that's certainly one aspect of it. I think mm -hmm. uh, that we see uh, a great deal of, and and the more um, incentives there are for that, um, you know, the more you're going to see. But from from other aspects, I think that's really a cultural uh, yeah. situation, and that is thoroughly within the context of how a company determines its culture. So we worked with um, JLL for about nine years, and they participated in our index, the Inclusion Index, 
um, that we do. Can you talk a little bit about what that is actually? That might be helpful um, to know. It's, the, it's a um, survey where the, it, it's the only survey that um, measures the integration of diversity, inclusion, strategy, and talent management. And so it's 80% of Fortune 500 companies and um, Fortune 1000 companies and large regionals can participate as well. And we do two things. One, it, it's the best places for women and diverse managers to work list. And then the other one is the in index in uh, recruiting. We look at recruiting strategies, representation, workplace inclusion and retention, accountability, succession planning. So we have all of that, those insights. Um, more than 800 unique companies have participated. And so JLL is one of the early commercial real estate. And they did it for nine years and to move up to be in the top 10 company. So, um, so the reality. So I hear what you're saying. Well, we know people profits pretty much as when you're C-suite or talking about this is we want to retain good people and, and we want to keep um, our, our stakeholders happy with profits. But when, when we looked at JLL and some of the drivers that they were having, number one was coming from the customers. <laughs> Their customers say, we want to understand what your inclusive diversity strategies look like um, because those were the ones that were going to impact them the most. And then uh, two, and they said, we want to mirror more, even on a global scale, of what our, our, what our consumers look like. Even though it was B2B, they were saying, we want to have more women, and we want to have people of color, we want to have more diverse workforces, just because we know it's a matter of uh, innovation, and we know that diversity brings innovation, and we know what this do. So th then that became a driver. And when you look at um, what they've done, they are the one, the number one, companies with 65% women and people of color on their board of directors that basically says, okay, but it takes time mm -hmm. to, uh, to change any type of workforce. So what you have to do in the process and what we're trying to teach companies is to celebrate the milestones, recognize what you, where you are and then where you want to go and to celebrate those milestones. So I, I feel, in, 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 and this is not the only homogenous, non-traditional industry. I mean, um, Financial services, law. education, law, right, there, there's manufacturing. There, there's a lot of them that exist, but it's really just recon, recognizing, I agree with you, what, particularly around what your culture is. And, and most organizations are trying to define what their inclusive culture uh, nature is, what that means, and how that shows up. But, but aligning with, their, with, the, with the customer base, what's driving what they need to do, which is going to ensure profits and more market share and so forth, and ensuring um, trust and, and um, safety within the culture so that employees, the retention stays, M being intentional about some of the strategies, the advancement of women and, and people of color, and also how you recruit you know, your external um, talent and, and engaging your folks, and, and creating and investing um, in platforms that allows people, no matter where they are, to, to belong, and that's one of the things I really uh, loved about um, JLL. They basically looked at what they had internally and said, how do we do better at this? So they gave a really nice bonus to people for referrals. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they had ERGs, do employee resource groups, do projects and come up with external relationships with, us, with the colleges and uh, to help fill their pipeline. And then they actually just revamped everything that they had from an e-learning platform and made it global. So they actually have the number one virtual ERGs 
in the country. They do it so well globally that they created an environment. So that, that's the strategy about around the people piece, really, really engaging. And what I liked about that too is that talking about there's a lot of whataboutism when it comes to diversity. Like, what about me? What about me? You know, am I leaving these people out? Are, we're, we're promoting this group, but what about all the other groups? And what strategies like that promote is that everyone does get ahead. Like, if you can create an inclusive atmosphere where everyone does feel like they can belong and that they can succeed, intentionally creating that atmosphere, intentionally putting into place policies, they are policies that do benefit everyone. And that's what we really want to emphasize, that we are not saying that you have to completely change your culture or change your values or change everything about you, but we want to see more intentionality when it comes to recruiting and promotion and retention, and especially, and we've talked about this, being a champion for women and minorities, being someone who has the power and who has the access and opening that door and letting other people in as well. That's what we're really looking to see. Which then leads to our next question is, what are the reasons that our industry, CRE, is not changing? What are, what are the, what's the pushback? What are the challenges that this industry faces when it comes to diversifying? This industry, mm -hmm. particularly? This particular industry that these people are part of here. I, I think it's, just, it's, it's real simple. I mean, it's, it's the pipeline. It's, it's who actually is doing the hiring. Um, it's, it's, there's the best, practice, best practices and basic principles around any non-traditional industry. Why does you know, technology industries have a hard time with women? It's, you know, that's why we're investing in STEM and what have you. So if you look at your core skills and what's required in your core skills within this industry, I mean, you have some that are sales, that are across the board and marketplace, but now it's where you can, where you recruit. And you have so, this industry has so many components to it that midsize, is probably the larger market than the global companies. Um, so when you look at the dynamics of a mid-size organization that might have all white male partners and they have promoted female partners and then they're focused on now moving women so they can have gender um, equity and then they're looking like at pay gap and then now all of a sudden probably in the generation where they are now the younger millennials you know you know millennials are now segmented in the workplace because those are getting ready to become Gen Zers or like you know don't put us in that group even though they're millennials we've been in the workforce 10 years so but the segmentation of the millennials so with the gen with, so with those younger millennials they're saying we would like to see a more um, socially committed workspace, more diverse, more aligned with what it looks like. So that generation is beginning to bring awareness. And the, the reality is, is unless your companies, your partners say, we need to see you diversify, um, then they will not. Mm -hmm. So that, that's one of the barriers. The other barrier is with women, which gives you a broader sense of of thinking and, and having in, inherent nurturers at the table, they'll see that too. And so the conversation has been opened and then you're able to now uh, say, okay, let's, let's diversify. I actually spoke to a company who had 100 employees and they said, what can we do? We only have 100 employees and we're all white and to, to diversify. And so it's all about the awareness in the community, awareness among where you want to recruit, where you want folks to know, and then asking your larger clients, how do you help us do this kind of thing? Right. So, so it is 
so so part of it is 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 just inherent in its uh, in the nature, and it doesn't mean that that's wrong. So it, it just doesn't mean that that's wrong because you have people that have built businesses that are there that are committed to giving back. But what? But when you get to a certain size, you know, what? What is the mid size? You know, is it a thousand employees? Is it five thousand? What's the the size of an architect for a good? You know, now what is our commitment to maybe give back? What is our commitment to make sure we try to develop women and and people of color? Uh, some of the barriers are, are, are just that. I mean, unless there is this um, this class action movement to say you have to do this, you know, they're, they're not going to do it unless they see that it's good businesses. But I think just the nature of the the changing in generations, it will happen. Mm -hmm. It will, and then with more women being in those roles, it will happen. And then with more community coming into the workspace, it, it will happen. Um, as you as you talk about that, and then there's some that just will not change, like some law firms, and you know, and there's nothing you're going to do about that. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad; it just means that's where they are. And then geographically, it depends on where they are. And if it's a mid-sized company, and you're sitting here in in Iowa in the middle, and there's just no diversity, then this doesn't mean that's that's your fault. The, the question yeah. becomes, what can we do? to expose our industry to younger women and people of color. Maybe where I won't, wouldn't think about going to an HBCU and speaking, mm -hmm. or a Hispanically, Hispanic um, you know, or Asian-dominated university to speak. Let's be intentional about doing that. So, right. so now it becomes about the awareness kind mm -hmm. of thing. Well, and I think from a from a built environment standpoint, I mean, this room really is a good example of, you know, a very diverse space, right? It's got uh, traditional uh, chairs. It's got um, uh, all kinds of other um, uh, cushy chairs and then uh, uh, platform seating and uh, quiet areas where someone's... Uh, uh, boxing right now that nobody can hear and other areas where no, anything you do <laughs> on the other side that um, you can hear so and different light levels okay but you still have to meet the minimum requirements that are in the building code and so uh, all those things do have to be taken into account but you know the whole idea of being able to migrate from one location to another is to where you, you feel comfortable or, or fit in and that room still has to have the, uh, the temperature settings and controls and, and ventilation that is able to uh, accommodate that. Um, one of the things we used to laugh about uh, years ago was how people would label rooms. You know, it, it, it was like the old story of, um, you know, uh, a, uh, a color selection where you were trying to get a particular color and you were describing it in terms of a flower or a tree or whatever, and then the uh, the painter would just write down yellow, green, <laughs> red, you know, and, and so, um, but yeah, I mean, you do have to, you know, change those uh, uh, terminologies sometimes into something more generic. But I was going to say that, you know, one of the, one of the drawbacks to, to dealing with uh, codes is the requirements that are written prescriptively. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it only becomes the minimum requirements that we're supposed to deal with. And you see this with accessible features in a building all the time. Okay, I have to make the door 32 inches wide. So guess what? My, my doors are gonna be 32 inches wide. 
Back when they first started uh, thinking about uh, accessible features for buildings and looking at those minimum requirements, there was a concept that was created called universal design. Whatever happened to universal design? Where it was accommodating both physical disabilities and people with no mobility impairments. And, and I think the struggle now in building codes is to pull away from prescriptive requirements to more performance-based requirements where you have the outline of what it is you're supposed to do, and then you go figure it out and prove that it at least meets the minimum requirements, but you're going beyond that. And so I think what we need to address in the future is the idea of a holistic right. universal design that accommodates everyone mm -hmm. into that mix. And that's inclusion right there, and that's belonging, trying to create a space where everyone does feel like they both can belong and they can succeed. We ready to do some questions? So we have about, ooh, okay, we're getting close to time. So we are gonna open it up for questions. Um, this is an honest space. I would also hope that if you hear someone say something, you don't automatically take it outside of the space and share it. So please feel free to open up your questions, ask what's on your mind, and we will do our best to answer them. First, kudos to the chapter for even hosting this event. I personally was excited to know that this was sold out. I think it's a relevant topic. I think we need a several more of these topics because there was a lot to unpack in this uh, that I just want you guys to consider. Um, winning strategies to actually move the needle a little bit. Um, biases. I didn't know about biases till I went to grad school. Mm. And first of all, to learn them, recognize them, educate yourself to recognize when you have them and then in others and then challenge is not always a positive thing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing. Um, diversity and to, and to come around that and also to not just say people have biases and it's okay, to really get under that. Like, why do we have these biases? Think about the neighborhoods in which we live, how we grew up, the books that we read, the, the media we consume, yeah. really diving into it and not just making it like, oh, it's fine, everyone has it, but getting into the reasons that we have them. Yeah, I, I guess that I'm trying to figure out how do you shift the negative lens? Because mm -hmm. this actually is an elephant in the room, right? There's a negativity to this, right? Mm -hmm. Diversity, inclusion, uh, it's very trendy. It could be check the box. Um, how do you shift it from wanting to do it instead of having to do it, being right. forced to do it. Uh, we know that there's a strategic business case to be diverse. Uh, you do have increased sales, all that good stuff. But I gotta be honest, I had these conversations before and if I was a white male, I would see this as being take, stuff being taken away from me. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people that might not be honest and admit that, but I can appreciate when somebody has that mentality and how do we shift the narrative from, from that and the probably last one is the gender neutral bathroom thing, right? There's a topic that, that is coming. Um, I, I get a little angst when I, there used to be bars when there was a shared bathroom and I would see a woman and we'd all wish, I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> you know, and even just recently uh, being overseas and there was a woman that came out, I immediately became panicked and like, okay, I'm in the wrong bathroom. They're like, this is a shared bathroom. So there's an adjustment for all of us that has to mm -hmm. get to that. So. Um, I hear, so how do you, how do you help us get to it? It's, it's them, not us. It's yeah. a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of work to 
do this the right way. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the first step, but I think helping us get frameworks and winning strategies is the next because there's a lot that you, a lot of considerations that has right. to be taken. Um, so can I share something? Yesterday, I was speaking with a um, large group of healthcare executives, but to your point, I agree, and, and it's a journey and it's all personal, but don't take it personal. So everyone, if everyone just think, think about where, um, where you are, I think it's a great thing that companies are bold enough to bring bias in the conversation to the workplace. It's a hard thing, but it's a great thing, right? So if we, if we have always worked across differences. The question today is how well and how effective are we today? So I, I say I put the we in there, but you could say of you. You've always, I mean, at the end of the day, if you put this group right here, this first row, and you say, well, they're a homogenous group just because they're white. Now you want to talk about the privilege. Well, if you look at this group, you say, wait a minute, two of them, three, three of them that we're going to presume have privilege at this point. But if you were to ask the gentleman here, the chapter president, so he gets fired and he has to go look at another job, he might not be dealing with white male discrimination. He'll be dealing with age discrimination. I know, I know you look 25. I'm just throwing it up there because you're great early. Because you're great early. Because you're but, but I'm, yeah. just, I'm just saying, so, we, so I'm, I'm just saying, so it's a great thing, is, is what I'm saying. It's a difficult thing and it's a hard thing because as African-American, you've been dealing with things differently for a long time. But to have the conversation, to have a white male be uncomfortable because he has to talk about privilege um, that he may not, this young man may not even know he has because the only thing his parents told him to do was to work hard and be good and bring your ass home and don't be drunk and you know, get the kind of job I you know, developed you for, and that's all he's heard, so he doesn't know anything about what privilege means uh, versus those of us that are talking about privilege getting a seat at the table. So it's how we define it, and when we talk about it, we talk to our children about privilege because they are children of color, and they need to understand that the majority are not privileged, so we give them that lens of what it means. And so if you all of a sudden come into the ranks and you're talking, you're telling a mid-level manager, someone who's been on a track to be a, a, an architectural design leader, that you have white privilege and you're not a part of a conversation that existed and you're wondering why they have fear of unknown and, and why they're pushing back against it because we're not bringing in the change conversation the way we should do, and each taking the responsibility. We have our inherent biases. We're hardwired in terms of what you, what you mentioned earlier. And then we do have the systemic biases, right, that are the mitigating, the explicit bias, and then the implicit. And so the awareness of where it is and to understand your own triggers is what it's about. Am I triggered when I see a white male? Absolutely. Help me get into the next level. <laughs> How well can I, you know, it doesn't even mean that he's a white male. It means who the person is and where they are, and then you might get to talk about the other piece of it. But it's all about understanding your own triggers and then how to manage those white where you are. And if they're not teaching that in these bias training courses, they should. They should teach you the behaviors to go along with the information so that we can you know, then begin to mitigate. Because it's just, it's a great thing. Because only 26% of companies have accountability aligned to the bias training. Yeah. So right now everybody's getting information 
And, and it's responsible for you leaders to make sure you have messaging and communication as to what you mean, what you're trying to do. And it's even, it's even bolder to sit there and have courageous conversations around how people are feeling. I'm, I'm done with that. that. Yeah, and absolutely be honest about that. And what I will add, add, add to what you said, Michael, um, so I talk a lot about bias, and I talk a lot about everything. Um, I found that I, and this is me personally speaking for myself, Michelle Silverthorne, I get very tired of making the business case because I feel like after you make the business case and tell people that diversity makes you a lot of money and the demographics are great, they will look at all the money they've been making before and they were fine. And they were successful and everyone was happy and they were all getting along. So we need to have more than that. I think it's important that you make the business case. It's important that we talk about the clients are changing. It's important that we talk about the generations. But that can't just, the only reason my diversity exists cannot be to make you more money. I matter because I matter. And I exist because I exist. And we need to have that conversation. So one thing I try to do is create that empathy. Understand what it is like to be me, to go into a space and I see no one who looks like me. Understand that when I have to be perfect every single day because I cannot stumble, because the second I stumble, someone will turn to me and say, oh, I guess she's just like the rest of them. That's what it's like. And if I can create that sense of empathy and that sense of understanding that this is the struggle, and then you know what it's like too, then I can get you to want to change because you want to change, not because you have to change. So that's the pushing that I'm trying to get to. So yeah, let's make the business case. Let's talk about clients. But I really want you to understand what it's like to be me and what it's like to be you and what it's like to be alone and isolated and be second guessed all the time in the workplace. I'd like to thank the chapter for uh, having this topic. Uh, one of the things that I'd like to uh, get some insight on or some perspective is um, <clears throat> increasing diversity in the workplace. Uh, my company uh, is regularly um, in the top 50 most diverse companies in the country or in the world. And <clears throat> one of the things that, that we've instituted, and I'm not really sure that it's very successful, is a corporate diversity inclusion goal for managers. <clears throat> and um, the reason why I said I don't believe is that effective is uh, as a relatively new employee, uh, in the company at say less than four years and having several uh, middle level managers that report to me, um, when we look to recruit and hire new individuals, you know, it's a proven fact that people hire individuals they're comfortable with and mm -hmm. you usually are comfortable with people that, have, that are similar to yourself. Mm -hmm. And um, one, one instance I had was uh, there was a, a regional leader on my team and uh, as we were discussing his performance uh, during a mid-year review, and I said, you know, due to diversity and inclusion, I said, you don't have a very diverse, diverse workforce. I said, so when, when you do have openings, you need to consider some individuals that are not like everyone else. And that particular leader says, I have an extremely diverse workforce. Well, this individual was a, a Caucasian male, and, uh, and he had 15 Caucasian males on his team. And, and I was somewhat surprised by his comment saying that he had extremely diverse work, workforce. And he said, I said, well, could you explain to me based on what, what's your understanding of diversity? He said, diversity of thought. So um, really it depends on what your perception of diversity is. And, and 
one of the things that I learned from one of the C-level uh, members of our, of our um, organization that, that was a little bit more impactful. He indicated to his direct uh, um, reports, he tied in their, into their performance goals, not a corporate goal, but into their human resources and personnel goal, compensation-related issues, Absolutely. which he said was much more impactful. Um, which made individuals think somewhat outside the box. Um, and I think that, you know, when individuals say that we need to improve or increase diversity, um, you know, as some of us say, it's check the box. But you really have to look at it and ask the individuals within your organization what they think diversity is because everybody might have a different impression. Right. So if I can, so there's three things around the movement of that. So, um, so 85% of companies, Fortune 500 companies, have reward systems embedded. Bonuses used to be number one. Bonuses are now, for senior leaders, is now at about 42%. In the performance reviews, is now at 89%. So the accountability is cascaded down through the ranks. And then recognition has driven up where you're doing recognition, non-compensation recognition platforms have increased um, have doubled, so it's about 68% now. So the combination of non-compensation recognition and embedded in the performance review is one indicator to drive it. Secondly is, is education. So if you are a top 50 diverse company, recognize that you do have different cultures within your organization. So a regional leader might, might look very differently. And diversity of thought is, if you look at the Rupert's Will, and there's a number of dimensions. But if you look at the Rubles Rule where there's 22 dimensions of diversity, the diversity of thought is um, a primary one in what most homogenous groups look, look at. So then you have to help them understand, right, the other dimensions of diversity, even if you're doing it on your team, to say this is where the organization is moving, this is where you are. Yes, we, we have these other compensations, but here's the information that we need to make sure we have that. And then the third thing would be exposure. I would say this the, part of the responsibility and accountability of the organization to your leaders is to make sure they have exposure to the right senior leaders that are helping them understand what the corporate mission is around diversity and inclusion. Do you have any more questions? Oh, we have one at the front. The 25-year-old has a question. That's great, Arlen. You're actually only off by a few years. <laughs> you were uh, speaking to um, ERGs or employee resource groups. And I, what I was curious as to how um, a business engaged in corporate real estate might leverage ERGs to help them further their mission in terms of diversity and inclusion. OMG. Um, JLL is your best practice um, solution, but pr pretty, pretty much the, and, and I definitely will let you comment on this, pretty much um, it, ERGs have evolved to business resource groups to where they focus on how they can bring different markets um, with strategic goals, and a lot of times they're structured and where they're aligned to a business function, and then um, they could be by ethnic group, by network, by discipline, and then they can join and be a part of that team and bring in what you would call grassroots resources. In fact, ERGs or indoor BRGs, they are the number one 
um, resource for recruiting and diversify your organization. And speaking of AT&T, who has 100 and um, they have 260,000 employees and 198,000 of their employees belong to an ERG. That's just how robust their employee resource group, business resource group program, because that was a trick question. So, so in, this, in, this, in this industry, if you were to uh, just, usually they, they start off with women um, and by ethnicity and then maybe generational, depending on what you were, people come together and want to begin with some like thinking. Um, to, on a particular initiative that's aligned to the business strategy, they can really, really support to move uh, the business into some very, very um, innovative thinking and creative ways. So I think it's a, it's a great start, regardless how, how large your company is. It's a great start to do that. Plus, I mean, I think that as a millennial and as a millennial of color, I love ERGs because they give you that community, right? That's something that we talk about all the time. What millennials need, we need two things. We need a community and we need a person. We need a person to go to who can help us, who can direct us, who can give us advice and all that stuff. And that's what ERGs are able to give. If you can create a space where someone can go in and they can all talk with each other about what they need and what they're not getting and what they can get, that's great. And then let's keep it with the business. Let's keep it with recruiting. Let's keep it with that group, that people, those group of people, their peers are the ones UBC are sending out those job listings to. Their peers are the ones that you want to bring in. Even the ones who have left, use your alumni, please. You have so many people of color who have left your organizations. Some of them have left on bad terms. A lot of them have left on good terms. When you're trying to recruit, actively use that alumni network and get them, get them back in, get them to send you people your way. Um, and then ERGs are, I mean, they're so important to me in different ways, but really I like that sense of community. I like that recruiting. And I like the idea that they have a voice that's a lot louder with 150 people than one person. So if 150 people are seeing something the same way that the company is not doing, that voice is going to speak a lot louder than one person does. So that's why I want to keep them. I want to keep them robust. I want to keep them happening. I do not want them to get eliminated. Uh, we have time for, I think, uh, one more question. I always like to get a question in. It's my thing. So uh, for the last four years, I was serving as a uh, diversity and inclusion champion at U.S. Bank. Um, I'm a logical candidate for that, as you can tell. Yes, you are, because <coughs> you are a white man with power, yeah. so thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the token old white guy in the group that they have at the, at the bank. So the, uh, the trick we were really wrestling with, particularly in certain parts, um, technical parts like credit, credit approval, that kind of thing, where years of experience required to get there, um, really challenged with the talent acquisition side in, in trying to move the needle on diversity. Uh, so I'm interested in best practices. And one of the things that we did was make sure that our, our interview panels included some member of the diverse groups that might have been interviewed so that we kind of address the bias that could be there. Um, what other things have you seen? So Bank of America <laughs> happens to be an incredible uh, guru in terms of driving practices to mitigate bias in their hiring. PNC also just did some really good things around that. So the first thing is if you're going to have diverse slates, it has to be aligned to accountability. So talent acquisition and your bits, your HR and your uh, hiring manager, they have to be partners and they have to have shared goals. And diverse slates doesn't mean just having a white female and a person of color and then three white males. You have to really define you know, what that actually looks like. 
in, in terms of, um, and have accountability aligned to it, to scorecards or what have you, so that it does actually happen. And it has to be cascaded. And that's what they did. They actually cascaded it all the way down to the um, manager level. The other thing Walmart does really well, they have a uh, ment peer mentoring for the managers, two up, two, 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 two above and two below. So engaging and helping expand your hiring managers so that they can have some experiential thinking outside of the comfort zone in terms of who they hire. That's really important. It may not have to be two, but maybe it's one. Maybe it's also peer. But it's important that they're able to have another voice to have a conversation with uh, around what they think they, the role they have to fill and what they want. And then the other piece in talent acquisition is what's happening with your recruiters. What are the systems you're using? To recruit? Are you depending socially, I mean, heavily on social media where there's a ton, or LinkedIn, or you know, the technology, AI, there's a ton of bias embedded in those systems and platforms. So, really looking at what you're using and beginning to mitigate that and what the responsibility of your first, your first line of recruiters hiring is. Because if they're required to look at 10,000 resumes and you have a system that's screening through them, so you've already eliminated a ton of talent. So you, you have to look at some of the, your old HR systems, people software, what you have in place, and upgrade them. So PNC and Bank of America, they did do the financial, and I use them because they not only are top companies, but they actually invested in doing that. And then being um, very, so you do have to invest in your own folks and talent acquisition. And then you have to look at who's hiring. So if you have a predominantly white force, usually 60% of white women are doing the hiring, um, and then the rest of them are people of color, you have to then train those recruiters with a different lens. You may have all these dimensions of diversity training going on in your organization, but recruiters need to be trained separately on bias. They need to be trained separately on cultural competency, just like they are on ADA, on, right? You have to be able to do that. They need to be trained separately on PTSD or the different dimensions of veterans and what have you. So you, you have to invest in your work in your recruiting uh, workforce in terms, I mean, you're recruiting uh, hiring folks and they have to be aligned really seriously for real with the hiring managers. Not, 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 not say, oh, I'm your HR business partner, this is what we're gonna do. But I mean, seriously aligned with that. The other best practice models, AT&T does a really good job when they hired advocates. They put advocates and champions from their ERGs aligned with each of the business units and the hiring managers that help them do that. So the ERGs ended up uh, partnering with its high, the college chapter. So let's say LGBTQ was hard to bring that group on. So the pride group and the organizations partnered with the chapter in the, in the person with disabilities in the colleges that they were identified with to bring those, those students awareness, bring them up for interns and different, but that's how they were able to get to those targeted groups. And then depending on who you're focused on, this will be the last one. I can go on and I have a book on this. I can go on and on. But depending on who you're focused on, for a period of time, you hire those dedicated the recruiters in, in talent acquisition. So if you want more veterans, LGBTQ, person with disabilities, you hire them. And then you put metrics behind every freaking conference you go to to recruit. So if you're going and you're investing in black real estate associations or Hispanic, whatever. I know there's crew, but if you're going and you're investing in that, you better tell them how many resumes did you look at, how many hires did you bring in, and what, I mean, how many interviews did we do, and what were our FTEs, and why did we, what was the gap, and why we lost 
those hires. I mean, that's the kind of effort that you have to put into looking at your entire talent acquisition system. So it is a shift. It is time to shift that paradigm in how you hire. You have to rework the strategy. You have to reskill the folks that are doing the hiring and realign how they work with your business units. I know that was a bunch, but that's, that's what's happening to make sure you're successful in hiring. And U.S. Bank is right there, and you know, to go to the next level, you guys need to do that. Because what the other banks are offering, you know, you're picking from each other anyway. You guys are homogenous anyway. So thank you. Good. Michelle, Christopher, and Pam, thank you so much thank for joining so us on our panel today. Thank you, everyone, for joining us.